Amen. You can remain standing as our kids are dismissed to their Kidfinity U classes. Thanks to our teachers and everybody that makes that possible for our kids up through third grade. And you guys can make your way to your classes as we continue in here. Today we finish out uh, the book of Haggai, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. They're called minor because of the shortness of the book, not because of their importance, just as a clarification. So Haggai chapter 2, we're in verse 10, uh, going through the end of of the chapter, verse 23. Let's hear God's word together today. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, Does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, Before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twelfth From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord has been laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, the word you give us, written in this case some 2,500 years ago, uh, is a great challenge to us. It's a challenge sometimes to just comprehend, uh, but we confess even more it's a challenge to listen and obey. God, we pray uh, that this uh, short book of Haggai over these few weeks, God, that you would continue uh, to use it in our hearts, in our lives. Uh, to shape us, to help us to hear from you about what it means uh, to serve you and to serve your kingdom above our own. Father, thank you for a a church family who is eager to hear from you, uh, a group of people excited to open your word together. God, we we don't take it for granted uh, that we get to come before your word week in and week out. And so, God, we just rejoice the moment that we get to share here together. Bless it uh, as we come to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We are now the uh, some third or so week into January, uh, which means that uh, 
statistically probably half of you that made resolutions have ditched them by now. Uh, that seems to be the case. Uh, but uh, hopefully, if you've, you've got some new resolve, some things you're working on, hopefully you haven't given up completely. Whenever you start off something new, usually we start with some energy and enthusiasm, don't we? But then some short time after, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, but at some point your, your confidence and your energy begins to wane, and you need something to kind of keep going. So some of our students in, in the block schedule, you started brand new classes uh, in the spring semester. So maybe you've got some new energy and excitement towards school, or teachers are starting out, or maybe you, maybe you can picture a time you had a, a new job or something like that, and as you began, you had a lot of energy but at some time along the way, somebody's going to have to come. Something's going to happen to kind of, to kind of boost you along. You need a, you need a pickup as you're going. In endurance sports like running or cycling, uh, apparently there's some kind of science behind your, your lactate threshold and something like that. I don't fully understand it. But I do know that if you're, if you're running or cycling pretty hard for about 45 minutes to an hour, somewhere in there, you've got to start taking in some kind of fuel more than just water or else your, your, your body begins to crash. You started out well-fed, well-nourished. Well you were starting out good. You had a lot of energy. But you can't just keep going without resupplying. you got to refuel. you got to find energy somewhere. When we come here to the book of Haggai, the last section here, we're about three months into the work beginning anew in the temple. And this sermon, this really pair of sermons from the second part of Haggai 2, are essentially that refueling process for the people of God. Some three months ago, back, we get the exact dates, September 21st, 520 B.C. They, we know that by the day of the month and the king at the time. September 21st, they had started on the work. God had told the people, listen, you've been back in the land for all these years, about 16 years or so, and you haven't rebuilt the temple. It's sitting in ruins. You're far too worried about your own houses, and you're not caring about the thing that I care about, which is a place of worship for me to dwell with my people and for us to commune together and for sacrifices to be made and sin atoned for. He said, you're far too worried about your own thing and not caring about the God thing. And so September 21st, they get together and they get started on the work. Last week, we got into chapter 2 after they had started the work and they're celebrating the glory of this temple that's coming. And we looked ahead to this isn't just the temple he's talking about. This is about God's kingdom us as the people of God and even when Christ returns and the glory that's going to come. But here at the end of chapter 2, two different sermons or, or, or kind of oracles, prophecies that Haggai gives, both on the same day, and this is given to us, it says uh, on the, well, it says the ninth, uh, 24th day of the ninth month, which would have been December 18th. So we're three months into the process. They've been building the temple, and this message from Haggai is essentially that refuel. We don't get a sense that they're, they're giving up, but he's saying, I just want to go ahead and, and speak into this, that if you're about to give up or you're getting discouraged, you need to pick me up along the way, here's a message I have for you. And that is such an important thing in the Christian life, is it not? The day you came to know the Lord, or perhaps a different day where you were really excited about the Lord, you, you've had moments, hopefully, in life where you are gung-ho and ready and eager for the Lord. But then there's also times where your energy starts to wane. Maybe it's three weeks into a new year. Maybe you started a Bible reading plan and you're two, 10 days behind already. And you're like, I don't know how I can ever catch up. Whatever it may be, you, there are times in our Christian life where we just, we need some, mm, we need some, some motivation to keep going, to keep track. What's going to sustain you? How are you going to keep going when 
it gets hard. How are you going to keep going when things are challenging? Haggai comes and gives us a word in Haggai chapter 2 that helps them and I think will help us keep going. It's a word to the return exiles about, about continuing to build the temple. And all along we, through this series, we've said that the, the today's equivalent isn't building a building. It's, in, it's doing ministry. It's investing in people. We are the house of God. And so ministry, believe it or not, is going to take some energy. And there are times, like we said last week, where your energy might start to wane. Because we love people, but people can be difficult, right? And so if you're going to keep investing in people, you're going to need some refueling, some, re, some sustaining. How are you going to keep going? How are you going to keep investing in the people of God? Well, I think Haggai 2, 10 to 13, kind of breaks out into a, a past, present, and future. This is the, the, the encouragement he gives to sustain them. He gives them something about the past, something about the present, something about the future. But I'm going to take them out of order. I'm going to take past and then future, and then today, all right? Because I think that's how we, we live in the today. I think that'll help us. So I want to look backwards first with us into Haggai. In chapter 2, all the way from verse 10 all to 17, is about what it was like before they started building the temple. And here's my encouragement to you about staying the course. If we're going to continue today, we have to look back and remember that sin was a disaster. Sin was a disaster. There can be a temptation in the Christian life to be going along pretty good and somehow look back at our lives before Christ or before a turning point. And most of the time we're like, yeah, yeah, that was bad. But every now and then we go, I kind of miss some of those not so good things that I was a part of. And we begin to twist and we have kind of this false idea in our mind, this lie the devil feeds us that, you know, I, I may be going back just a little bit into the way things used to be. wouldn't be so bad. And we have to remember in that moment, if we're going to stay the course, Sin wasn't good. It was evil, and it was a disaster. Haggai makes that point with some pretty um, elaborate uh, Old Testament references and schemes, so stick with me here, but I think, I think you can follow his illustration. He begins uh, in, through, 10, through 10, verse 10 through 17, but verse 15 and 16 get the point. He says, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So this is what he's saying. Before you started building the temple, stone upon stone, how were things really going? Do you remember what it was like? That's the, that's the sentiment of what he's asking. And he, he does it by coming up with this, uh, using this illustration from the, the way the temple would have worked, the purity laws of the Old Testament. He has a dialogue with the priest, and he says, okay, if you've, got, if you've gotten your robe, so they have these big long robes they could carry stuff with. He said, if you've got your robe and you've got something holy in there, a holy piece of meat, and you go and you deliver that, that meat to the temple, and then you take that robe around. Is it like this magical wand that makes everything holy that it touches? He says, no, you can't just spread holiness that way. But sin, unholiness, does spread that way, according to the Levitical system. Once somebody or something has touched a dead body or something else that's ceremonially unclean, everything it touches becomes unclean. That sin, that unholiness is contagious. It spreads, and so if you don't do something about it, the unholiness will just continue and continue and continue. And that's an illustration for the way that sin so often works, does it not? It's like a disease. It is contagious. It's like a virus, and it can spread rapidly. It can spread person to person. One person in a group starts down a bad track. If nobody cuts them off, the whole group may start to go with them. Or, or just in your own life, if you start to allow yourself a little bit of, you know, I'm going to step into sin just in this one area, 
I become lazy with my, my faith and my obedience to Christ in this one area, eventually your whole body, your whole life starts to ease that way. It begins to spread. Haggai noticed this among his people back before they started following God in faithful obedience. This is what it said in verse 14. The Lord said, so it is with his people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord, and with every work of their hands and whatever they offer there is unclean. He says, you have been lax on, on building the temple. You're not following him in obedience. And essentially, everything you do is tarnished. Everything you do is unclean. It has spread throughout, and it is contagious. Your uncleanliness, your disobedience is contagious. That's how it was before. Before you started following God, he said, I want you to remember just how bad it was. Don't look back on those days with envy or with, with missing them, with nostalgia. They weren't good days. Sin was destroying you. And it was incurable. It was contagious and incurable. It was spreading and there was no temple. In the, in the Old Testament system, the way you stop sin, the way you take something from being unholy and make it holy, wasn't by just rubbing up against something that was holy. You came and you made a sacrifice at the temple. But there was no temple. And so the, holiness was, the unholiness was spreading and there was no way to cut it off. And they were just continuing down this path. And because of that, everything they do was just futile. It was not accomplishing what it was meant to accomplish. That's what the point is, verse 15 and 16. It said, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple, the Lord, how did you fare? He's like, what was it? how was this really going? Verse 16 continues, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the vine drought to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. He says, your supplies, all the harvest, instead of increasing, it was decreasing. Things were getting worse and worse. Physically, the produce of the land, things were going down. In verse 17, he says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. He says, even in the hardest of that time, you weren't repenting. You weren't following. These were, should have been opportunities. When things were so bad, you should have stopped and gone, I need to follow Jesus. Well, God. They didn't know Jesus yet. But I need to follow God. I need to follow the Lord. And he says, you, you weren't even doing that. Even in your hardest days, remember how bad it was. There can be a danger in our Christian walk to look back on our sin with amnesia. Do you, do you ever have some, some momentary amnesia? You just forget how bad things were. I, I'm convinced, and it could be in the opposite way. This is a positive example. I'm convinced that without a little bit of amnesia, the, the human race would have ended a long time ago. Because I don't know why any woman who has had one child has another. Like, I've been there three times now. I don't know why y'all keep going back. Like, that looks really hard. There's pregnant women in the room. It's, you're great. You're going to do awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, you're going to do awesome. I didn't really think that through. Anyway, they, have, they do have more kids, so apparently it works out. I don't know. We, we can forget how, how bad the bad is. And we can go back into, I'm re, the pregnant, I really threw myself out. I should have not used that at all. <laughs> in bad things, in evil things, when we go back to bad things, it's bad. Having more kids is good. All right, I'm leaving it there. It's worth remembering how bad sin is. Because if you forget, you're more likely to pick it back up. Sin was a disaster, Haggai says. If you're going to continue down the road of obedience, you're building the temple now, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and if you're going to continue at it, you've got to remember. There can be a temptation to just 
just say, hey, if something's in the past, I'm going to ignore it. I'm not going to think anything about it. And I get it. You're moving forward, making a plan. But the problem is, if you never deal with it, you might go back to it in the wrong way. We got to remember, we got to know what was there. You're not blind to it. Sin was a disaster. And I got to know that well enough so I don't repeat it and move forward. Before we move on to what Haggai says about the future, I want to notice something here between the the way the unholiness worked in the Levitical system and the way that's different than with Jesus. Did you hear how Haggai described the, the, the ceremonial laws? If something was unholy and it came in contact with something that was holy, and they, they touched, what happened? Now they were both unholy, right? The, 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 the disease, the, the infection spreads. The holiness didn't. What happens over and over again in Jesus' life when he comes in contact with someone who is unclean or unholy? For the first time in human history, it goes backwards. The holiness spreads. It tells us something about his his character, about his nature, about his holiness, that he can change the unholy, and it tells us about his sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the only way something could become that was unholy could become holy was through a sacrifice. The only way Jesus, who is holy, makes the unholy thing holy is that he became the sacrifice. As Haggai is proclaiming this to the people, they probably had no idea of what great news was still to come, that one day the unholy would be made holy by the Holy One of God. He was pure, he was holy, he was perfect, and he became the cure. He became the solution to the spreading, rampant unholiness. For everyone who is a Christian, we are the ones who have been healed. We've been cleansed by the touch of Jesus. A leper comes to Jesus, and he could have just said, be healed. But multiple times he says he reached out and touched him and healed him. Jesus can speak holiness into just existence with his mouth. He spoke the world into existence, spoke the universe into existence. But he touched them as a way of saying, your holiness doesn't define, your unholiness, your uncleanliness doesn't define you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you by my touch. Sin was a disaster, and Jesus is the solution to that disaster. It's how the sin is ended. It's how the uncleanliness is taken over. That's what Haggai wants you to know about your past. If you're a Christian, that has happened to you. Your unholiness has been overcome by the sacrifice of Jesus. And he has made you pure. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the sin that has been overcome. If you're going to continue along the path, one of the ways to refuel is to remember what Christ has done for you in the past. And as you think about the past, you're going to keep forward. It's also helpful to know where you're going. And what's ahead? Haggai, I'd summarize Haggai's uh, observation there this way. Know that the future is in God's hands. Remember, sin was a disaster. That's the past. Know that the future, whatever's ahead, is in the hand of the Lord. It's in God's hands. I want to skip down to verse 20, to the second sermon that, that he gives, that Haggai gives on this 18th of, of December, 520 B.C., And it's the first of Haggai's messages that he gives that's not to everybody. This one he gives to just one man. He's just preaching to one man, Zerubbabel. The rest are given to everybody. This one's just given to the governor. Israel at this point was still under the the rule of the Persian Empire. So there was no king in Israel. The king was the king of Persia, Darius. He was the king. He was the king over all this. All the people of Israel 
were just one little province on the edge of the kingdom of Persia. And the little governor that was kind of over this little group of people, his name was Zerubbabel. But it was probably, um, yeah, so we, when Zerubbabel gets this message, it's just for him because probably it would have been dangerous for this announcement been announced too publicly. What Haggai wanted to communicate to him is these, these present powers that you see, Persia and everybody else, these present powers are not quite as strong as they look. In fact, they are, they are rather fragile. Verse 21 and 22, speak to Zerubbabel. This is God speaking to Haggai to then speak to Zerubbabel. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. So Zerubbabel, Haggai speaking to Zerubbabel, he says, look, I know that you see Persia as this big kingdom that looks like they're in charge of everything. But just know that in my, they're, they're all in my hand. I got all under control. And there is coming a day when there's going to be a total upheaval in power. His power, God's power, is going to make their power look like nothing. God, yes, this kingdom is strong now, but don't forget, I reign over them. I am in charge of all of them. The reference in 20, verse 22 to chariots and riders is probably a, an echo back to what God did to Egypt. It's like he's telling Zerubbabel, hey, hey, you're not the first, it's not, this is not the first time that God's people have been little and small under the reign of some big uh, army or government or whatever above them. And just remember, God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. God took a, a fledgling nation, a, a lot of people, but an enslaved nation out of the strongest kingdom of the time, Egypt, brought them through a Red Sea on dry ground and then destroyed that government's army with the washing of those Red Sea waters back together, right? If God wants to move his people and overcome some other group, he can do it. You don't have to worry, Zerubbabel. It's okay. God has the future in his hands. And the powers that be are not quite as strong as you may think. Remember how bad sin was, but remember the future, that this is all in the hand of God. Think back now to what we can know, what we know since the day of Zerubbabel. Just from his time to the, the rest of the, the biblical times, some at least four major kingdoms would rise and fall. The Babylonians were at the front end of the exile. They get overthrown. The Persians overthrew them. That's why the Israelites are back in their land. But it wouldn't be long before the Greeks come and take them over. It wouldn't be long before the Romans come and take them over. And that government didn't last all that long either in the spectrum of eternity. Since then, since the days of the Bible, the world has seen the likes of the Han dynasty in China the Umad uh, Caliphate in the Middle East, the Mongol Empire in Asia, the Ottoman Empire all around the Mediterranean, a global Spanish Empire, an enormous Russian Empire, and the history's biggest empire, the British Empire, which at one point encompassed a fourth of the land's landmass and a fourth of the people of the world all in one empire. And you know what all those empires are doing now? They're not in charge of the world. <laughs> None of them are. You know who still is in charge? God. He is still on the throne. God tells Zerubbabel through Haggai, listen, I, I'm going to move the kingdoms around like I want. The kingdoms are going to be subject to me. I am on the throne. And the things that seem so powerful now at the end will not be all that powerful. There's coming a reversal of power. What a great encouragement to stay the course when things get hard. 
If you're going to continue in ministry, continue in loving people, there's going to be powers around you, things that seem like, I just can't overcome this. God is still on the throne, and the future is still in his hands. God is in control. What a great encouragement. We can know that, that everybody wants to be on the side of the winners, right? That's why you get bandwagon fans, right? Like I came to the state of South Carolina about the time Clemson football was starting to get real big and doing well, you know, lots of people were Clemson fans then, you know. Everybody loves being a part of a team. That I didn't get, I didn't, nobody liked that. I felt, you felt like I was making fun of you. Okay, I'll move on. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a part of the, the newest fad, you know, maybe cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence. There's a lot of temptation to be just whatever's powerful right now, I kind of want to be a part of. And then especially in a, an election year, we need to know that the future's in God's hands, not the voting booth's hands, right? We are the people, and we should vote, and that's important. But we should know where the future is held. It's held by the Lord. To the naked eye, to the, to the, to the, the, the eye of the world, it can look like whoever the president of the United States is is the closest thing to a president of the world. But they're not. God is in charge of all the galaxies, including our country, including our lives. The future is in God's hands. Present powers are a lot more fragile than they may seem. God is in control. So the question is, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the powers that are fragile? Are you going to serve the powers that are of this world and that are going to end one day? Or are you going to live for the eternal kingdom? Are you going to live for the kingdom that will never be overthrown and the kingdom that will reign forever and ever? Who are you devoting your life to? At the end of that message to Zerubbabel, God makes an amazing promise to him. He said this, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Now, I know that's kind of a, an odd promise, but the background to this promise is that God had spoken through Jeremiah to uh, Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah. Jeconiah was the, the king over Israel when Israel was destroyed by the Babylonians. And God told Jeremiah, to, through, through Jeremiah to, to Jeconiah, the, were the signet ring on my right, right hand, yet I would tear you off. He's saying this a signet ring was a, a symbol of, of authority, delegated authority. Whoever had the signet ring of the king could make a promise, could set a seal with the king's signet ring saying, the king said this. So if you're holding the king's ring, you get to speak for the king. And that was a symbol for the king of Israel. He was the, the, the earthly representative for Yahweh. And God tells Jeconiah, I am ripping that ring away from you. You are no longer my representative. And for the time period of exile, the people were wondering, how could God go back on his promise? God had told King David, there will be one of your descendants on my throne representing me on this world, in this world forever, for all of eternity. But now the signet ring has been removed. And so for 70 years of exile, people are wondering, where is God's promise? Where is God's faithfulness? He had said we would have a king. And so here is God speaking to Zerubbabel, the grandson of the one from whom the signet ring was removed. And he says, on you, I am putting the signet ring. I'm giving it back. My authority is still here. I was in charge all along. And I have not gonna, I'm not going to fail my promise. One problem, though, 
Zerubbabel never becomes king. He was just a governor. It's a big deal, but he was just a governor. You got to turn just a, a few pages in your Bible to find the answer to that. It covers about 400, 500 years. But you get to Matthew chapter 1, and you read this genealogy of the son of David, of the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And when you go through his line, you get to a, a passage, verse 12, it says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And you keep going down to verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. This is Zerubbabel, some lowly, no-name governor of a little bitty empire on the corner, a little bitty province on the corner of the Persian Empire, he is in the line of Jesus. Jesus is the signet ring that, he, that God had promised through Haggai. He is the one who reigns on the throne of David for all of eternity. The future is in the hands of God. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question who's in charge of the future. God had it in control all along. And he has promised to send Jesus once again. Once more, God will shake the heavens and the earth. Once more, all the things that look like they are reigning in the present powers of the world will be shaken again. And Jesus will come and every knee will bow. People will know this is the one who is in charge of human history. The future is in God's hands. That's the past. That's the future. So what about today. Sin was a disaster. The future is in God's hands. So he's saying, don't jump ship now. Don't, don't, you, I want to encourage you to how you're going to live, how you're going to be sustained in the here and now. And to borrow 2 Corinthians 5, 7, this is how we live now. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. The climax of the first sermon that Haggai preached on December 18th, 520 B.C., was this uh, line in verses 18 and 19. It says, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Haggai said, look, you, you, you did it. I, I proclaimed, I told you from the Lord, you need to go and build the temple, and you started doing it. You started in the work. Praise God that you started following him in obedience. You went to work. You heard the word of God. It was a response of faith to say, I believe this is worth our effort. This, I believe this is better investment of our time to pour into the temple rather than just our own houses. That was a step of faith. Here we are three months in, and I know what you might be thinking. He says, I know you're not, you're not you know, giving up yet, but there, there might be a little voice in the back of your head that's going, you know, we hadn't really seen a lot of progress yet. <laughs> We haven't really seen like God moving mountains and thousands of people coming to our, to our new nation. And this temple, you know, it's coming together, but it's not going to be all that great, God. So, you know, so he's cutting it off before you even get there. Before you even think about it, he says, let me give you a little encouragement. And the, the, the illustration he uses is a farming illustration. I love this, this metaphor he gives. He says, as a farmer, there is, there's one point in your, in your, your season, your, your harvest season, well, you've got all the seeds together that you're going to plant, and they're all sitting there in your barn, right? And you can see it. That is your capital. That, that, those seeds you could sell to somebody else or trade or barter or whatever else, but you can see it. Your, your wealth is visibly in front of you. The seed is in the barn. But there's a day after that where you plant all that seed, right? If you're a farmer, you've got to plant it at some point. And all that seed goes from being visible 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a liquidable asset. You could move around. You could sell whatever. But now it's in the ground. You have planted it. You buried all your money. You put all your, all your resources into the ground. And then you know what you got to do? Wait. You can't, you can't dig it back out. There's no way to, to get it and go and give it away. You can't sell it or whatever else. It's just in the ground. So now what? There's a day in between planting and harvesting that requires faith. And Haggai says, we're right there in the middle. We're right in the middle of planting and harvesting. Verse, uh, when he says in verse uh, 17, 16, 19, the seed, is the seed yet in the barn? So we've already gotten rid of it. It's already gone. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. So we planted it. There's no seed, but there's no fruit yet. He's saying, how are we going to keep going when we've planted and we haven't yet harvested? He said, this is the time when we walk by faith, not by sight. You trust, hey, what was behind us, the sin that was before us, that wasn't good. I trust that what's ahead of us, God has promised blessing upon us. He says, but from this day on, I will bless you. There's coming a blessing. I can't see it yet. There's no fruit on the tree, but I'm going to trust that he is with us. We walk by faith, not by sight. They started the work on the temple, but it is not an overnight shift. Ministry rarely happens dramatically overnight. People are like big ships that take a long time to move, right? We rarely see dramatic change. It happens. God does amazing things. It happens. Some people are just radical transformation in a day. Most of us are more like the Titanic. Slow. It sinks. That's a bad, bad about picking ships. Some really big, important ship that doesn't sink. We're like that. It takes a long time to sink. I mean, to sink. <laughs> to shift is the word. Here we go. So we have to walk by faith, not by sight. One more detail I want you to see in this story. There's this phrase that gets repeated. Consider from this day onward, verse 15. Verse 18. Consider from this day onward. Again, verse 18. Since the day, the foundation of the Lord's simple. Verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. Can you hear that Haggai is like putting a, a flag down and saying, I'm marking this occasion. There, there's a day here that I want to make sure we can all look back and remember together. What was the day he's talking about? He's marking a day on the calendar, but before this day and after this day. Verse 18, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. That's the day. He's proclaiming about the day we started the work. And he says, from that day on, we can be sure of God's promise. We can be sure where he said, I will bless you. Haggai wants you to remember that day. That was foundation day. He wants you to remember. We're going to celebrate this. It's foundation day. I'm going to remember the day the foundation was laid. Stone was laid upon stone. And we're going to remember from this day forward, we could be sure of God's promise. God had proclaimed the word to us. We responded in faith. That faith led to obedience. Foundation day was the day we can look back and say, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt of God's promises being sure because we remember foundation day. I want you to know you have a foundation day. It was the day that Jesus was crucified and the day he was resurrected. 
Second Peter, first, first Peter chapter 2, quoting Isaiah 28, we heard earlier, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a foundation day, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. First Peter 2, 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus' crucifixion is our foundation day. It became a cornerstone on which the rest of the stones of the temple are laid. We are the temple. We are the stones. We are built up. And if there ever is a day where we're wondering, are God's promises true? Does it really, did, is God really going to hold the future like he says he's going to? Is it really in his hands? Is God really for me? Because, man, it feels like he's against me today. I, I'm, I'm struggling. I started out strong, and I need, I need to refuel. You can look back to your foundation day. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which was then applied to you on the day you believed. Foundation day was Jesus once and for all. That was in history. But there was also a day where you believed that foundation day. When you said, I, I see my sin. It's a disaster. I see the Savior of the world. He paid for my sin. He can make me from go from being unclean to clean. He can transform me. He can cleanse me. I believe in him because I know he has the future in his hands. No other power has the future in control. Only God. And when you believe in that, that becomes your foundation day. It becomes the day that the crucifixion and the resurrection is applied to you. Here's my question. Do you have a foundation day? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ? There is only one way to be saved, and it is by believing in Jesus. Do you have a foundation day? Because if you do not, you will continue to wallow in the disaster that is your sin, and you will live with a future that is very uncertain, and you will try to walk today by sight instead of by faith, and it will not last good forever. You will struggle. You need a foundation day. You need faith in Jesus Christ. He and He alone saves. And if you do not know Him, today can be your foundation day. You can turn from your sins. You can say, today, God, I admit I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Maybe you want to pray that as we sing our closing song. Maybe you want to come and pray with me. Come pray with Nathan. Come catch us after the service. Call me on Tuesday. I don't care when. But you need a foundation day. The book of Haggai is this invitation for the, book, for the people of Israel to consider their ways. What priorities are you chasing? It's still the beginning of 2024. And we want to ask, what are your priorities? Are you investing in building your own paneled houses and moving further up the corporate ladder and saving for retirement and getting better at some hobby? Okay, fine. But there's a better investment of your 2024. It's loving your neighbor. It's building the people of God. And there's an invitation for you to join in that people, to have a foundation day. Maybe today's the day. Let's pray. Father, you change hearts. Only you transform lives. So, Lord, we submit to you right here and now and confess we are so often far more concerned with our own priorities 
than of the things of the Lord. And so, God, we pray that even now you would convict our hearts of where we prioritize our stuff instead of seeking you. And Father, the biggest way you have changed so many of us in the room is that you have brought us from death to life. You have taken us out of the disaster of our sin and you've brought us into relationship with you. Father, we pray thanking you for that salvation for so many that are here. But God, I also pray if there are any who are here who do not yet have a foundation day, who do not have a, a day of salvation, a day of celebrating new life in you, God, we pray that you would convict and you would change hearts and you would transform lives. God, help us to see the ugliness of our sin. Help us to see the glory of a Savior who gave his life for us. Help us to see the freedom of grace and the joy of walking with you for eternity. God, we pray that you would move in our hearts and our lives so that we could trust in you, either for the first time or in a new way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.